0: Show you a better way. You don't have to and we are live. Welcome, folks, to Outback with Jack, episode 3047. Uh, yeah, I got it right that time. It is Monday. We're back after a weekend. I spent most of my weekend uh, doing some composting and quite a bit of it sitting on the porch in really wonderful weather. Uh, where this hoodie that I'm wearing indoors right now certainly wasn't necessary. It was so beautiful this weekend. Hung out with the wife and the dog and uh, had some uh, vodkas and sodas, and it was a good weekend. And now it's like 41 degrees outside, I woke up this morning, and it was like 34 or 35 or something like that. I think winter is giving us one last blast, and if you were on Twitch watching us and you saw me chatting and they're like, what is he talking about? I'm talking to the people that are on YouTube. All of it feeds into my back office and StreamYard, and I can actually see your comments and what have you uh, before I go live while you guys are chatting in the various chat rooms. So if you ever see me on Twitch and you're wondering, who's he talking to? find talking to YouTube, people. If I, you ever see me on YouTube and I'm talking to, like, who's he talking to? Probably the people on Twitch. I do see your comments, those of you who watch the live feed on Facebook, but I don't think you see mine unless I put them up on the screen. I don't think they – go back in and append into Facebook because it is a comment, not a chat like it is on Twitch and on uh, YouTube. So with that, kind of stalling a little bit, let people come on into the live stream after the live stream picks up. I see the numbers going up there for us. Um, I do want to kind of say something about Twitch for those of you that didn't know what Twitch was. Um, I was prodded by not a lot of people, just, you know, a handful of people. Hey, man, you should if you're live streaming, you should be on Twitch. You should be on Twitch. And I always thought Twitch was like for gamers and stuff, and apparently it was, but apparently there's a lot more talk and uh, live video on Twitch now than just around the gaming industry. They are owned by Microsoft, I believe, so they are not exactly friends of Freedom. But they let me speak for now, so if you guys want to listen to me there and all I had to do was uh, click a few buttons, then uh, why not? Why not give people who, who like what you do what they ask for when doing so is easy and didn't really cost me anything? And I was, it took me a while to figure out how to get the videos on Twitch to archive, but I did that. And then I found out they archive for 30 days. And, th- but if you're a Prime member on Amazon, uh, you can link your Prime account and it'll archive for 60 days. So anything I put on Twitch will be available for 60 days after, uh, the stream ends. So, Twitch users, there you go. With that, let's dig on into it. Here's what I've got today. Uh, back channel information I have. Uh, and confirmed with more than one source, and I've seen chatter about it on Twitter, et cetera. Putin has made an offer to the Ukrainians, Ukrainians to leave Ukraine, to cease the war and go home. Whether the offer is like, if they take it, it'll, it'll be legitimate. Uh, whether or not Zelensky or the Ukraine government will take it is up to be seen, but there is an offer and it's strikingly similar to what I said would be the best case scenario. Uh, that you would get away with right now. Um, On that, I am tired of being told that I shouldn't trust the Russian media and RT. I don't trust the Russian media. We'll talk about how I don't trust any media. But in this case, I actually trust RT, you bet, better than I do Fox News or MSNBC or CNN because one has lied to me more. And when I have liars that I'm dealing with, you know, you have liars that lie sometimes. You have liars that lie all the time. If you have to pick one to uh, to kind of come down on probably being closer to the truth, not telling the truth, the one that lies less, that would be who? Um, federal government, uh, by the way, paid Fox, CNN, CNN, MSNBC, et cetera, to push a narrative, specific narrative. I'll talk about that today. Um, Elon Musk says he's been asked to disable Tesla vehicles in Russia remotely. Remember what happens in 2025? We need to be thinking about and understanding what's going on right now. Somebody in our crypto group on MeWe said uh, they posted a thing about a story of a bank account being shut down with no explanation, and they wanted me to make them feel better about it. I can't. I can't. It happens. And it wasn't somebody that was involved with uh, something real nefarious or someone was just average everyday person. And I'll tell you a little bit about what happened there. Electric cars are supposed to be the solution to our oil crisis. So says the potato and chief, Brandon himself, my question, if we could, if we could seriously turn up enough electric vehicles to make a significant difference in fossil fuel consumption in the next year, while I'll, when we get to it, I'll tell you why that, like even that is like ridiculous that that would happen right now. Um, where's the power come from without coal, oil and natural gas? Where do we get all this electricity? Do we get it from a jelly bean field? We'll, we'll talk about that today. And then we're going to make a shift into, instead of talking about current events, kind of going into what we can do about things, we're going to talk about a massive food shortage that I do believe is coming. People are starting to buzz about this, but I think there's a group of people that are going to get most hurt, hurt by it, and it's probably not the people freaking out the most about it right now. The semi, I'm, I have to come up with a new term. Maybe you guys can help me with this today. What do you call a prepper that's not a prepper? What do you call the preppers that are always telling you to be prepared and they're always in all the prepper groups and they're in the prepper chats and they occasionally post a picture or something or two, usually their gun or their ammo or their new chest rig or whatever it is. But whenever a crisis hits, they're the first ones to freak the fuck out. Uh, Tom says it's a bitcher. Yeah, but I want a a more technical, technical term. I think that's a very accurate poser's, Posers. Is there a way we can combine the word poser and prepper? Preposer or something like that? I, we need a word for these people. Um, because apparently they're the ones that are always telling you to be prepared, but they must not be prepared if every prep tender from James Richer. That's it. Prep tender. That's going in my notes right now so that I don't forget that one. Uh, definitely. Prep tender p t e n d e r love it james you win ding 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 what do you get i don't know but that is that is bang on prep tenders are freaking out uh, the prep tenders may deal with some empty shelves and stuff like that i think we all will rising costs etc but there's a group of people in the world who are going to get hit much harder than this they've already been kind of the hardest hit people with shortages uh because of the covids and the pandemic no one cares no one cares. Maybe if they held up a Ukrainian flag, somebody would care. I don't know. Uh, but on that, we're going to move into, if you ever heard of a canned hunt, a canned hunt is when you go hunting like on a preserve and basically you drive around and pick an animal and shoot it. I'm not a big fan of this. I do like to hunt exotic game. Uh, I have a ranch I hunt down in South Texas. It's 25,000 acres. And, the exotic game on it are actually more difficult to hunt than the whitetails. Um, and so I will do that. But what if some of the canned hunts, which is, again, basically you go out and shoot an animal that, that doesn't really run away. I wouldn't call it hunting. But what if it's the new way to get meat affordably? Does that sound crazy? Wait till I tell you what I found this weekend and just my thoughts on it on an ROI for dollar for dollar, especially with the inflated price of meat. Uh, so if you saw the hunting in the pre-canned notes, that's what was coming. Uh, my new old method, new slash old method of comp- composting, is it a Johnson Sioux bioreactor? It's very, very similar, but it's not where the idea comes from itself. We'll talk about that, what I do and what they don't do. The problem of not knowing what you don't know and the story of cutting with regular pl- pliers. Any of you see my little two-minute video this weekend while I was composting about how you can take a plain old pair of cheapo slip joint pliers or any good pair of them either, and then you can cut wire with them and not some funky way, like the way they're actually designed to do it. A lot of you probably knew that, right? You probably knew that, but but did everybody know that? And And how does that fit into not knowing what you don't know? And then we had one of the manly men tell us how stupid anybody is who didn't know that, uh, and their comments. We'll talk about that and how this is a much bigger thing than what a pair of pliers can do and how it's really hard to cure ignorance when you don't know you have it. And again, when I use the word ignorance, I generally am not using it as an insult. I'm certainly not here. Meaning if you didn't know that you didn't know that regular pliers can cut wire, why would you ever think that they could? Why would you ever research how to cut wire with a regular pair of pliers when you figured you should be using like needle nose with a wire cutter dedicated or a pair of diagonal cutting pliers. Or if you didn't know what diagonal cutting pliers were, how would you learn how to use them? Cause some people don't know. And why do we have so many people that don't know these things? And is it our, should we be berating young, especially young men that don't know these skills, but you know, young women too should know how to do this stuff or should we be teaching them? And how can we teach people that don't need to know they need to learn? We're going to have a little bit of a conversation on that. We're going to talk about why I feel any truly regenerative or even sustainable future has to have aquaculture, and it's why I'm so big on teaching it. And we're going to finish up with with all these bad things in the world, how if you own as little as a tenth of an acre and you're not producing some food with it, you're wasting one of the best assets that you have and how spoiled we are in America that we allow that to happen. Most parts of the world – The ones that are going to get hit the hardest with these shortages, they're on this already. They know. So if you have anything for me, remember, if you want me to comment on it or answer a question, at least the first couple of words, all caps. Let's go into this. So Putin's offer leaving the Ukraine. There are times when I say this is a rumor. I would say this is still a rumor unless something has happened since this morning where it's come out officially in some capacity. I have not checked since then. I have checked with some back channel sources and this appears to be legit. Putin has basically said, if you want me to leave Ukraine, then this is what I need the Ukrainian government to do. Number one, recognize Donetsk and Luhansk as independent republics, which I said would be absolutely required. That that would be something that Putin would definitely, this is minimum. Now that this has been pushed this far, what you can expect to get out with. Um, amend the Ukraine constitution to prohibit joining any bloc. In other words, declare the nation officially neutral, be Switzerland. It's kind of what we saying now. I don't know if the Ukrainian government would be willing to amend its constitution. I'm not saying they should or shouldn't do this. I'm just telling you, this is what the offer is best I can tell right now. Um, but Russia would, you know, whenever you ask for something, you generally ask for more than you are willing to take. So Russia might take some sort of formal agreement to that or even something that's like, you know, we, we guarantee for the next 40 years or something. Who knows? And then this one I didn't expect, um, but I guess it makes sense. And if you think about the totality of where we are at in the world right now, they also want Ukraine to recognize Crimea as part of Russia, which would be like telling China, hey, we need you to recognize Taiwan as an independent country. It's kind of the same thing, right? So if you're opposed to that, then you've got to balance your scales one side or the other of this, right? Um, I don't know if you're Ukraine right now. It's a, it's a pretty tempting offer. Uh, assuming that Russia would make good on its promises. One of the things though that I've seen, and this goes all the way back to the cold war. Ronald Reagan said this every word. Every time they ever gave their word, they kept it, and we were the ones that broke ours. Ronald Reagan said that shit, guys, not not me. So remember what I said when this all started, and I was called crazy for it, and a Putin sympathizer and other kinds of bullshit like that, right? Um, that it w- would actually be in the benefit of Ukraine, if they're going to have a democratically elected government, to let donetsk and Luhansk go. Because those areas right now, if you live there, you get to vote. You get to vote in elections. And they vote over 90% on the pro-Russian party side. So if Zelensky can make this agreement and just go, fine, we don't need to have this war. And it's been a war zone for eight years over there, guys. There's been people bombing each other back and forth, shelling each other, shooting RPGs with mortars inside them at each other for eight freaking years in in violation of the Minsk agreement, by the way by our ally, you know, the side that's on our side, they're the ones that are mostly violating that. I'm not saying the only ones, but you cut them loose. There's not a lot of value there. There's not a lot of money there. And you basically would sway the elections from this point forward to be pro-Ukraine national. So you don't lose much. And if you actually want what you say you want, you gain a lot. Um, amending a constitution is a big deal. It's not something any nation does lightly, usually anyway. But some sort of agreement, some sort of formal agreement, we won't join NATO. Now, what I wasn't able to figure out is, what does Putin and his government mean by block? NATO is obvious. Is EU membership considered block? Or would it only be a treaty alliance, not something like... And so, I think that Ukraine would have a much more likely willingness to say we won't join NATO now because they feel like we left them out to dry anyway. Like what good would it really do? There might be some of that sentiment there, but they're really pushing for EU membership. And there's a lot of advance. See, this is what people, this TV will never tell you this. There is a massive amount of oil and gas, well, really gas in Ukraine. Okay. There's a massive amount. We all know that because of Hunter Biden's cocaine money and shit, right? However, What we don't know, because the TV won't tell you this, is Ukraine does not have the resources or the money to develop that gas resource and actually put it onto the market in a real way. And Russia doesn't want them to, by the way, because Russia makes all their money on oil and gas. And they have a pretty big monopoly in Europe right now with it because they can actually get it directly to Europe fairly quickly, even without that pipeline that's now sort of kind of shut down. Okay. Um it's much easier to get their gas into Germany than it is to get um, gas from the Middle East into Germany. And the Middle East is still more producing oil than gas. Right. So Putin would prefer that there not be a great competitor in the market. That is part of this. Um, but, yeah, if they join the EU, then there's a lot more incentive for different financial actors to come in and develop Ukraine gas resources. But giving up Crimea has really put a problem on that, too, because a lot of the gas that they can develop is actually offshore, including a lot of it that's off the Crimean shore. But where things are right now, it could all still happen if they can be in EU. So do does would the Russians permit an EU entry in lieu of being told we we commit we will not join NATO and maybe NATO making a statement we will not take Ukraine? Right. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but that's where we're at right now. And what I want to talk about is I've, I do share a lot of stories right now from RT, which, you know, I've had people email me go, do you even know what RT is? It means Russia Today. No shit. No shit. Right. I know all this shit. I didn't know that. OK, fine. Thanks for telling me there. Hop along. Yes, I do. And it's run by the Russian state. Me- it's Russian state media. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I know that. But what do I always say? Never take one side of the story. Ever. So you have to balance the two. So no, I do not trust Russia today as an entity. I do not trust Vladimir Putin to always tell the truth. Right now, I think you're more likely to get a closer version to the truth, though, from RT than you are from CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or CBS or any mainstream media source in the United States. Why? Because I think our side is more incentivized to lie than their side right now. And the reason I believe that is, unlike a lot of people who just figured out where Ukraine is, I've been talking about these issues since 2009 at least. I started the show in 08. I don't think I really talked much about this, uh, in 08. I know I spoke about it in 09. I've talked about the fact that there is a true absolute Nazi level fascist presence in Ukraine, that they are incredibly influential, um, that they are armed. There's entire militias that are state sponsored that are made up of these people that are supplied with, you know, ammunition and given certain authority, uh, to prosecute war in West Ukraine by the Ukraine government. I'm not new to this. I didn't come up with this yesterday. And I have paid attention to it over the years because two reasons. One, what I do for a living, and two, because my family heritage is Ukrainian. And so it matters to me a little bit. It doesn't matter to me as much as I think some people want it. I've had some people saying, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't deserve my surname anymore because I'm not 100% pro-Ukraine. And I've asked some of these people if they knew what the word Ukraine means. Ask yourself that. Unless you heard me say it before, do you know what the word even means? We think of Ukraine as this, like, state, this nation that's existed for at least a few hundred years, if not a few thousand years, where the borders are. Ukraine doesn't mean a country. Ukraine literally means borderland. It's a region that's always been in this disputed territory. And much of what is currently Ukraine today was not always Ukraine. Like a big piece of it used to be Poland. Right? So that's just... That's just how things are. And when I look at what is coming out of RT, I'm sure some of it's lies. But most of it has remained fairly consistent with the knowledge I already had in place. So my view with media is, first of all, you remember the old thing Reagan and, and Gorbachev, trust but verify? No. Trust no one but verify. Never trust your media. And I, I think it'd be really cool. I'll add it. Let me get in the notes here so I don't forget. Paul Joseph Watson put out a video this uh, last week called Modernarity. And it just shows what a complete and total cluster that the entire West has become. How insane, how suicidal we're behaving as a society. I don't even know that we can recover. And when I watch that, I go, you know what? There wasn't one thing in there that he made up. In fact, it's all clips of just us doing our own stupid shit. It's like 12 minutes long. It's actually hard to watch, but maybe you should. All right. So, no, I don't trust Russia today. But I'll tell you who I trust less. I trust the entities that were paid money directly by the United States government to put vaccines because actual fashion plain sight. Now, I want to be what I mean by this. I don't mean that your government took your tax dollars and paid Fox News to advertise the vaccine. I, I abhor that. I think that's despicable. I get that. I don't like it. But I also understand what it is. It's an advertisement. And when somebody sits down and they're watching TV and there's a talking head on the news, and then a commercial comes on and your children are listening to music and they're singing and dancing through a field, and now they can get the shot and they'll never die because they got the magic shot, it's bullshit. But at least you know what it is, right? You're looking at a commercial, you're not looking at news programming, right? Right? Think of the word programming, right? But when we watch the news, if we are if we are normals, right, normies. We expect that this is the facts, ma'am, just the facts, or at least it's the opinion of experts. We don't expect, and I say we, I'm not including most of the people listening to this, and I'm not including myself, but we don't as a society expect that that content has been bought and paid for. Now, those of us who realize how much money goes to Fox News, MSNBC, CBS, CNN, in pharmaceutical ads alone means that's not the case. But what we're talking about here is, The federal government coming in and going, hey, here's a check. We want X amount of positive coverage on the vaccine in the next month. And the agency going, okay, done. Basically taking news programming and it's actually a paid, bought and paid for informational without the freaking disclaimer. So do I trust Russia today more than that? Yeah. How do we know this? Because uh, the Blaze Media, Glenn Beck's organization, uh, obtained this information through a FOIL request. And I'll try to add that to the notes today. I don't have slides for you today. I don't have examples. I don't have a lot of uh, sourcing done today. I didn't have time today. I just put together the outline uh, based on the information I obtained over the weekend and uh, and put today's show together. So I'll have to add some of this stuff. Uh, this is confirmed. Elon Musk says, so I don't know if it's confirmed that it happened. It is confirmed that Musk stated it. He has been asked to disable Tesla vehicles in Russia remotely. They said no, by the way. So somebody, whether it was our government or European government or the Ukrainian government or some conglomerate or some group of NGOs that are actually geos, NGO means non government organization. A lot of the <laughs> NGOs might as well just, just say we're, we're an arm of the United States government or the European Union government said, Hey, you know, With all this shit going on and Putin bombing Ukraine and killing baby seals and shooting them at at beauty queens uh, out of cannons and killing them with baby seals, we should make sure that we punish Russia. So why not just flip a switch and remotely disable all Tesla vehicles currently in Russia? Well, this would be freaking financial suicide for Tesla. And Musk is not your friend, really, but he's also not stupid. And uh, so that would be a bad idea. But why? Why should some guy that lives in Russia that wants nothing to do with this war whatsoever, that has nothing to do with this war whatsoever, who maybe has a kid fighting this war even though that kid doesn't want to be there, who's dr- who actually did well enough in Russia to afford a Tesla. I'm sure there's not many of them in, in Russia anyway, but uh actually has figured out how to get himself into a Tesla. He's driving around Russia. He's living his life just like you and I do. He's not killing beauty queens with baby seals launched out of mortar tubes. He's just trying to get along in his life. Why should his car stop working that he tendered reasonable consideration for? Because we're mad at Russia and everybody has a Ukraine flag on their profile today. Nobody has a good answer for that other than, you know, yelling and screaming at you when you point out the obvious nonsense of it. But you know what? I, I don't really I don't really care. I'm trying to make sure that you guys understand where we're heading with this. There's a bill that became law, as far as I know, that says that by 2025, all cars manufactured not manufactured, but sold in the United States. So whether you manufacture them here or someone else, once you sell a vehicle with 2025 on the, on the sticker or later, you have to include a kill switch. You have to to make it where this is possible, where our government or law enforcement can say, eh, you know what, Jack's a jerk. He's telling people shit we don't like anymore. Shut his freaking car off. That's coming. And I'm wondering, number one, how it's going to be implemented. It could be so deep embedded in the programming of the vehicle because these vehicles today rely so much on computer controls that it may not be possible for it to be disabled or it may be possible that some people will figure out how to do it. You know, jail, like instead of jailbreaking your iPhone so you can actually install apps that you want. You could jailbreak your freaking vehicle so that the local PD or the FBI or the CIA or Bank of America can't shut your vehicle off. But it also makes me wonder, what the hell is a 2024 going to be worth in 2028? And are they going to try to do some retroactive shit? How many of these cars have so many computers in them and are now Wi-Fi enabled? Or somebody mentioned OnStar in the comments where this could be basically already done without a technical kill switch. You still have a kill switch or could be updated without your knowledge. You're driving around, your car receives an update. I mean, I look at my Subaru. My Subaru will alert us through our cell phone which is not a direct connection that our tire pressure is low. It actually alerts Subaru that the tire pressure is low. Probably affects the uh, trade in value of the vehicle. It's a lease. I don't really care, but right. If that, if that's already possible, then how many of these vehicles out there are they going to be able to just upload this to? Right. And that, not even tell you, just do it. I mean, almost all of our vehicles today run on a significant amount of software controls. Things like my challenger, well, that's a little bit different, right? They're, they're, it's like, they haven't really changed that car on the internals very much since I think early 2000s when it was released. But when I look at something like our Toyota truck, I have no doubt that that truck could be updated to have a kill switch even without already having a kill switch. It might be, uh, it might be an interesting thing that we're going to go through with that. Cause the next story I have for you is about bank accounts. So like I said, somebody posted this, uh, it was a YouTube video, a couple of guys in the UK discussing what happened to this gal. And it was in our cryptocurrency group. And they said, Jack, please keep me from freaking out. I, I, I can't, I, I don't think freaking out is the smart thing to do, but I can't tell you it's not true. And it's not happening. And basically this lady was out shopping. You know, in London or somewhere, somewhere over in the UK, you know, just going out about her daily life. And she goes into a store and she finds something she wants to buy, a little pair of glasses, a pair of shoes, you know, some groceries, whatever it was, and pulls out her card and doesn't work. She knows she has money in her account. It's like, a, it's like one of the debit credit cards that you're using, like a credit card, but it's really just taking it straight from your bank account. She knows she's got money in there. So they try rerunning and it doesn't work. So... Off she goes to the cash machine. It doesn't work. So off she goes to a second cash machine. It doesn't work. So off she goes to the bank. And the teller is trying to figure out why it won't work, and she can't figure out why it won't work. And finally, they get the manager involved. Manager disappears for about 45 minutes, pops back out and says, I'm going to read you a statement, and I will not be able to answer any of your questions after I give you the statement at all. So the statement is basically we have locked your bank account in accordance with some government bullshit that they're allowed to, and you're screwed. It, it's, it was a little bit more word salad than that, but basically that's we have locked your account. There's nothing you can do. We have no information as to why. So a month or two goes by. She's trying to survive without a bank account. You know, she's getting paid into her bank account, and uh finally the, the bank says well, you do have money in the account and we're, you're, it's staying locked, but here's a check for your money, which sounds pretty good until you're on some list where you can't open another bank account and you have a worthless piece of paper that will never, no one's going to cash it for you. No one's going to take it. Or maybe you can get your brother-in-law to cash it for you for 10% or something, but then. Does he really want to do that? Because he's worried that because he's now associated with you, they'll lock his account. This kind of crap is happening, folks. It's happening all over the world, especially the developed world. Why do you think one of the reasons I've told you to get involved with cryptocurrency and to never hold your coins on an exchange long term Use a wallet, at minimum, a software wallet like Exodus. Better, as you increase your holdings, that you use something like a hardware wallet, like a Trezor or a Ledger Nano or something like that. Why? Because there's literally nothing they can do about that. Now, that doesn't mean that if you have a couple hundred grand sitting in Bitcoin and they lock your bank accounts, you don't have a problem. It doesn't mean that everything you need to pay for is going to be something where somebody will take Bitcoin. What it does mean is you have an alternative, you have a problem. It's just not as big a problem as if you don't have that. Plus you have the long-term value, everything else, right? This is also why I say to keep cash. Now people will say, well, they're waging war on cash. They're going to get rid of cash eventually. And I don't believe in holding too much cash because right now your cash is eroding at about 10% to 20% per annum. You decide. So you got a hundred grand in cash. Best case scenario, it's worth 90 grand the end of this year. I think we're going to do way worse than that. So you can only hold, it's, it's it's like I said, there's an opportunity cost in holding cash. It's an insurance policy. When shit like this happens, at least I got something. And if there's some sort of big opportunity, I have this immediately liquid asset that I can spend it on. But they're going to ban it. Well, when they ban it, then we'll worry about that then, right? They're not going to one day you can use cash, next day you can't. There's going to have to be some sort of transitionary period. And uh that's just going to, like, that's how these things are always done. So, guys, if you're not taking this seriously, I I think you need to. And I think we're this close, and for those on the audio only, I'm holding my fingers about an inch apart. I think we're this close to this becoming really widespread and the wrong person in the wrong place of power simply making lists of people and shutting off their access to funding. Or saying, if you want to keep access to your funding, here's the things that you're going to have to do. People don't get it. When I talk about fascism in America, which the news media story I gave you with, you know, Fox being paid to tell you vaccines are good in news programming versus in a commercial, that's fascism. That's textbook fascism. But people always look at, well, fascism is this totalitarian level of control, right? So when they don't see, you know, incinerators and people being, you know, executed in gas chambers and incinerated like the Nazis did, they don't see fascism. They've been, They've been uh, so conditioned that that's what fascism is, that they don't recognize it. They do understand the word totalitarian control. In our society today, there is no better way to exert totalitarian control over people than through economic controls. Economic controls are social controls. All one need do is look at China and their social credit system to see how powerful that is. Basically, there are people in 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 China right now that have somehow offended the people in power. And for instance, a lot of people in China, unlike the United States, do get around on trains. And there's classes of trains. There's like trains you'd be happy to ride on and trains you really wouldn't be. And they go to the same places. You know, think think like back during the Titanic, like first class and third class, like that. And if you've offended the wrong person, the main reason you can't, Ride in first class is even if you have the money, your money won't work to buy the first class ticket. This shit's coming, guys, and and we need to take it seriously. And crypto is one of a multi-pronged strategy toward having assets that are tradable if it happens to you. Precious metals, yes. Real estate, yes. Can they seize real estate? Sure. It's a little bit more complicated, though, than just flipping a switch. And one of the things that we we really have to understand here is It is inevitable that when they create a system like this, even if the people behind it attempt to use it for good, it will inadvertently inadvertently be used for bad, right? And I'm not even talking malice. And what I mean is there are people that decided, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go take an airplane trip somewhere. So they buy a ticket and they go to the airport. And then they go to get on an airplane. And then they're told you can't get on the plane. <clears throat> and then it takes a lot of rigmarole and shit to find out why I can't get on the plane. But in in the end, you find out, well, that person's now on our terrorist watch or no fly list or something like that. And this has happened to people where it turned out that the uh, the parent could fly, but the kid couldn't. And the kid's like seven-year-old. Seven-year-old's on a terrorist watch list seven-year-old's on a no-fly zone, no-fly list. Why? Had the same name of somebody that actually was on the no-fly list, and there was an error. Sometimes it takes years to clear that error up. So even if you don't believe in the malice of this, the fact that they're building a system with which to do it, which already exists, they're just formalizing it and making it more universal, means that even if it's never completely turned against people, you could be the one that draws the short straw in it or the black rock if you know the story of the black rock. All right. So, I have another question for you guys. The potato salad in chief, let's put let's put up our banner for the potato salad in chief, right? Let's go Brandon. If somebody's asking you for solutions, we're going to talk about solutions in just a moment here. But the potato salad in chief, let's go Brandon, you know, and we're full on with let's go Brandon today, right, right here. Right? Let's go, Brandon, with the cat and the hat and the AR. Let's go to John Willis's uh, shirts. Um He says that the, this is a short-term problem, the price of fuel. It's a short-term problem because we are aggressively transitioning cars in the United States to electric vehicles. Okay, great. I'm not a pessimist in the general concept on this. I've been saying that By 2030, most vehicles will be electric in the United States. But I have a question, and this is a serious question. I'm not just being a dick here. Where's the electricity going to come from to go into the car, to make the car go down the road, right? Where where is it going to come from? Well, Jack, these new electric vehicles, you just plug them in to the outlet, and the power comes out of the outlet. Oh, Okay, <laughs> maybe I wasn't clear enough. Okay, where does the power that comes out of the hole in the wall or at the charging station come from? Jack, it comes from the electrical power generation, uh, you know, plant. And it goes through a bunch of substations and shit, and then it comes out of the hole and it goes into your car. Okay, maybe I'm slow, okay? Now, what do the people that run the power generation plant use to make the energy? I mean, if we were smart enough to actually be developing clean, safe, modern nuclear power plants, I think you'd be on to something big time. I think there's your there's your bridge, your bridge from a, 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 a society that primarily runs on fossil fuels to one that runs on much cleaner energy sources is nuclear. And no one seems to want to do that. Okay. Oh, I'm just going to go back to to, just for a second. Rewind. Right. Back to all the bullshit lies coming out of Russia. Did you guys see over the weekend? Putin bombed a nuclear power plant. No, no, it didn't happen. Satellite images showing all the reactors completely untouched. Apparently there was a fire at a building that was part of the facility or whatever. Don't even know how it happened. And the geniuses on Fox News who were scaring everybody with, you know, a potential bigger problem than Chernobyl and uh, they're, you know, when, when kind of pushed to the point of like, well, why? Why would Putin, why would Putin bomb a nuclear plant with his own soldiers on the ground in a country he's attempting to occupy? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it, it, it would shut down over 25%, maybe a third of the country from power in the middle of winter and make them suffer. Oh, okay. Somebody's thinking a little bit. I'll give you credit for that. Good job there, guys. Good job, Tucker Carlson, who's sold out on this one too, by the way. Um, But here's here's the thing. I'm just thinking. How does the power get from the nuclear power plant to all the people that use it? It goes across these things called wires, and it goes through these things called substations. If you just wanted to shut the power down, wouldn't a hell of a lot easier, safer, and effective way to do this be just to knock out substations and high transmission lines. That'd be really easy. There's probably not anybody even defending them. You could probably do it with pretty low-tech conventional weapons. So you could probably send a couple uh, Russians around with AKs just popping holes and transformers on power lines if you wanted to do that. No need to go blowing up a nuclear power plant. Anyway, I digress back to where we were. If we were willing to actually develop, and, and modern nuclear technology is incredibly safe, then we would have a great bridge to this world of renewables and electric-based equipment because electric cars are better in every way conceivable than fossil fuel cars. From a standpoint of technology, other than they're easier to put a kill switch in, I guess, but they're going to do it to them all anyway, except for the lack of power and the cost. So if you could solve the lack of power thing, scale will will fix the cost, right? Right. Scale will fix the – like, how are people going to be – I saw Robert, how will people be able to afford them? Well, when we're building them all as electric vehicles, they'll be a hell of a lot more affordable. That's called economy of scale. I know some of the kids are slow. You probably have like, you know, modern economics degrees, but you don't understand that like AOC, right? So, uh, yeah. But, yeah, wh- where are we going to get all this electricity from in the, in the interim? And the answer is even if we manage to do this, what happens to an electrical grid – when we have severe winter or severe summer weather every day. That's essentially what you're doing. So imagine every car on your street plugs in a high draw charge every night to their vehicles. Now, long term, this is all solvable. The vehicles actually can become kind of like power nodes themselves on a network, and power can go in and out, and you actually get a more stable grid long term. That is true. We ain't there yet. And we don't have enough generation capacity for this to work in 10 years fully, let alone short term. To me, short term is like six months. Jack shit ain't going to happen in six months. You want to know why? They can't build cars. My wife uh, let me know this week we need to take the Toyota in for its service at 5,000 miles. Okay, fine. So we take the Toyota in, and I follow her down there because – How's she going to get home leaving the truck? Right. So being a good husband, I don't want my wife walking, you know, 25 miles home from the dealership. So I go down to let her drop the truck off. She jumps in the showers with me and we head home. The parking lot was almost empty. There's maybe a dozen new vehicles on the lot. And there was maybe half a dozen to a dozen used vehicles on a toilet lot. This is one of the biggest toilet dealerships in Dallas, Fort Worth. It is the biggest one on the Fort Worth side. This is not a small dealership. This is a huge Toyota dealership. They do massive amounts of business. The reason we do business with a very, very good reputation, been in business forever. They have no vehicles. When we leave the lot, it's kind of hard to make a left out of it. So we usually make a right and then pop a U-turn. So we made the right and we go down. And like many dealerships, you have the new dealership and then a used car dealership that are basically owned by the same common entity. The used car dealership side, they have their own building, their own financing, their own lot. You know, instead of mixing the vehicles, they, they have them in two separate places. There's no cars on the used lot. The building was dark. They shut off the lights. So how's Tesla going to build a freaking car for everybody in America when we can't build a Toyota right now in the next six months When we're just now beginning the construction processes of the chip manufacturing facilities to bring that business back to America. And most of those plants won't be done for years. And by the way, they can't even get the material to put the roofs on. How is this economy going to recover, folks, when we can't get the things we need to rebuild the economy? We can't get the stuff. We can't get the widgets we can't get the, the 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 little trinkets, the little pieces. We can't get the screws that hold the metal roof on. We can't get the roof decking, like the decking, the sub-roof decking. My contact that's in that industry says the stuff they're ordering today, they're getting delivery dates in 2023 for. And the answer is it can't. We're in deep shit, guys. This is what I talked about a couple of weeks ago, and some of you didn't really get it, I think, about how bad the situation for our economy is globally, by the way. This is not a money problem. This is an economic problem. And it's very hard for people to separate those two worlds. You can have all the money that you need and still have a problem. And I don't mean you can printing press go burr, money printer go burr, and overprint and inflate, which we've done too. I mean you can have a perfectly designed, an optimally run monetary system. And if you don't have the stuff, you're still fucked. Okay? We don't have the stuff. We're going to rebuild American manufacturing. Made in America is going to mean something again. The potato said it right in the middle of his State of the Union address. Everybody cheered, even the Republicans. Really? Where? What are we going to build the plants with? Even if we're going to go into all these empty buildings, but some of them like, haven't had anything done with them in 20, 30 years. They're out of code. They're not up to date. There can be some saving on construction costs, but we have all these onerous regulations of what has to be done. You can't get the stuff to fix that building. And that's not the way America works anyway, right? We don't fix shit. It's cheaper in our freaking paper monetary society, our our print-on-demand money society, to build an entire new building than it is to fix an existing building. That's why you see all these buildings get built all the time. It's so like and there's like like there's a whole empty space that's bigger down the road. Why don't you fix that up? I remember this is not even that long ago but it's it's a while ago. it's like 15 years ago there was a great Target store where we lived in Arlington. Really nice store. And it's when Target decided they were going to go with mega targets, right? The ones where you can buy all the stuff you expect at Target plus your groceries, you know, plus get your tires changed like like they were emulating what Walmart was doing at the time. It's a great store, really big building. Would have been real easy to just add on to it. Nope. They demolished it to the ground and pushed it back. They bought the land behind it so they could make a bigger parking lot. Instead of parking around it, they wanted all the cars in the front, pushed it and rebuilt a brand new building, and they did it in months. They brought in prefabricated walls, dropped them in with cranes, brand new building. That's how we think. Great. Where's the stuff? We don't have the stuff. We don't have cars. We don't have roofing. What else don't we have? Fertilizer prices is about to go through the roof. You ain't even seen gas prices getting bad yet. It's time to take this seriously if you haven't been doing it yet. Okay? Like, I, you guys know, I'm always the voice of calm in this. And I'm not going hysterical with it. Oh, my God. I'm not going Harris, okay? We're not doing that, right? I'm not telling you to buy potassium iodine tablets so you won't get nuked. I'm telling you, take this shit seriously. So, what are some, what are some things we could do? Number one, I do believe a big food shortage is coming. Big time. More than we've experienced yet. And I believe it will be a major inconvenience for many people in America. I believe the people that will be hit the hardest by it in America, though, are those with the lowest income. Because it is primarily going to hit us where the cheap food lies. All the food that's made of corn and soy and wheat is going to be the stuff that goes up the most, proportional to its current cost. Does it mean steaks not going to go up? It means that steaks gone up, and it's only going to go up so much more. But food that's still really cheap right now, you either won't be able to get, or it'll double or triple in price. And if 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 ramen noodles triple in price, and you are Somebody that's doing fairly well economically, you won't really care. But if you're somebody that actually has to eat them a few times a week because it's what you can afford, you got a problem. But you know who's gonna get hurt worse? Than people in the developed world and things like that. People in the third world. The people that deal with starvation and famine on a daily basis, the people that have been hit the worst, rural India, rural Africa. Right, The places where they always have these ads for feeding the children, but the people that are so worried about feeding the children are walking around with a camera following them, with a little kid that's starving to death with flies on his face. She looks really well-fed or he looks really well-fed. Why don't you give them something to eat while you're standing there? Right? No, we want to appeal to a fallacy that if you send us money, we're going to feed that kid. We all know they're going to keep about 70% of that money for themselves, and they're going to distribute just enough to give legitimacy to their nonprofit and not pay an income tax. We all know that. Those people. This, however, may be one of those times where a lot of those people are better suited to get through this than some of us are. Because we waste so much in this country. And I don't mean throwing food away. I mean, we have so many resources we could be using to feed ourselves that we don't. And that brings me to just one idea I have for what might become... It ain't going to be for most people. Most people couldn't hunt. If, if you if you walked the deer into their front yard and pointed the gun for them, all they had to do was walk up and push a button. They wouldn't be able to do it or they wouldn't be able to figure it out. And I am not saying this is a good way to hunt. But there are hunts. I, I call them canned, and they're at, they're at different levels of canned. Some are completely canned. Some are... It's just way easier than it should be. I'll put it to you that way. It's not like, it's not like you have the animal on a hundred acres in completely fenced in open field and you drive around an ATV and shoot them off the ATV. That happens too. That's fully canned. But there's places they have, you know, a thousand, a couple, 3000 acres. Usually it's fenced, high fenced and you go out and you can create the illusion of hunting. But in the end, you can kind of like walk into the middle of a herd and pick one and shoot it. Right. That we have that. Less with white-tailed deer. White-tailed deer know when they're being hunted, but especially some of the bigger animals. Buffalo, you know, if you see somebody you say, I got a trophy elk. Where'd you get it? Texas. It's canned hunt. Friggin' tame elk. And walked out and shot it. Paid by the, by how big the rack was. Like, it's not a trophy. You're an idiot. But a lot of these ranches and stuff that do these hunts at various level of what I'd call canned. Like, completely canned. To It's just not real hunting but on the other edge closer to it, they sell, just call it what it is, they sell these animals relatively inexpensively if they're management animals or if they are females. Once the female gets large enough and she's dropped enough calves, they kind of want to, like, turn the genetics over. And I saw this weekend on Craigslist places an hour and a half for me where you can shoot a red stag doe for 600 bucks. You're talking about an animal with a live weight on the low end of about 300 pounds. And then, uh, you know, most of your, 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 your cow, uh, red stags are going to run between 300 and 400 pounds. $600. You know, that is, that's not a hanging weight. That's a live weight, but still, I mean, you're looking at a freezer filler for $600. You're, it, it, you're, you're looking at about the equivalent of an average half beef. And a half beef, is someone who buys it frequently, you know, usually once a year or every other year, I buy a half beef. That's a lot of meat. And it's, you know, it's very high quality meat. You're talking about, like, one thing y'all should know is when you order venison in a restaurant in the United States, nine times out of ten, it is, it is red stack. That's the number one farmed venison that we have. Now, I, I fully know that if I went up to this place, that it's not going to be the kind of hunting that you normally think of. We're going to go out. We're going to go out and herd. We're going to glass a little bit, pretend we're hunting. I'm going to pick one and put a bullet through it. I understand that. I might as well just, you know, go to a farmer and say, Hey, is it okay if I shoot this cow? We gut it here in your field, let the coyotes have it and, uh, hoist it up onto my truck and I'll take it down to get processed. Right. It's, it's just instead of the guy at the slaughterhouse putting a bolt in it, I'm putting a 180 grain nozzler through it. Do you know what? I don't care at that price. I'm thinking about doing it. And I'm just thinking like I started looking at like, well, what other options are out there? Like cow elk hunts and things like that. And a lot of this stuff or bison hunts, right? Where you're, 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 you're a you know, coal male or uh, uh bison cow. And I looked at those before and I looked at them exactly this way, just economically. And they were, they were okay. You know, five years ago, Economic like there's some economic sense in this. When I look at the price of meat today, 600 bucks for what's probably going to net you 150 pounds of red meat? Go do that at the store without buying the cheapest, nastiest, low-end ground beef you can get. That is a pretty decent financial ROI, and I'm wondering if more things are going to happen like that. And we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. But it's just something that, like, the big reason I wanted to bring that up is not everybody go do that. I want you to start thinking differently about solving a problem. How many of you, if you'll say so in the comments, would have even thought about that? Not, oh, I'd go hunting and shoot a deer, but to actually go to a game ranch, pay to hunt, half-ass hunt, but end up with this huge meat yield for less than you can buy the meat in the store. Would you even have like considered that? And if you did, if you wouldn't have, say no. Just, I'd like to see that in the comments if anybody's willing to admit it. Because it makes me think of when COVID started and I had people and I never said this publicly back then because I didn't want to create a rush on it. But people back then were emailing me and saying they're freaking out. They should have done more to prep and they wanted to lay up like wheat or barley or like that. And when they went to Honeyville or wherever, it was all sold out and they couldn't get any. And individually, what I responded with was, have you checked the homebrew store? Because they got plenty of barley. They got plenty of wheat, 50 pound bags. Probably have a homebrew store in your own backyard. You can drive right up there and buy three or four bags of it. Right, I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying if you really want some, you can do that. Or why don't you go to the the feed store and buy you know seed quality wheat or seed quality barley? They'll sell it to you, and they had plenty of it, even in the middle of it. Or go to a restaurant site like Webstaurant.com, and there was plenty of food available. You could order and have shipped right to your house with very low shipping. And it's a restaurant supply website, but they don't care if you're actually a restaurant or not. And it is going to be this type of thinking that's going to help you thrive through the shit that's coming. Those two things are not things you should say, oh, I'm going to do that. You should start to evaluate these, these various shortages and crisis with a different lens. What can I do about it? Um, next, we'll go to something totally different. One thing you can do is grow food, and to grow food, we need fertility. And I've been uh, talking about how I'm composting now. And people keep bringing up Nick Ferguson talking about something called the Johnson Sioux Bioreactor. And I think the first time he really talked about it publicly was right here at my place on my back porch during a workshop. And I think it was last fall. And he was sitting there on the porch, and he was kind of sitting like this with his fingertips. With, like, his fingertips touching, and in that kind of genial way that only Nick Ferguson can do, was, like, composting is bad. And he kind of spreads his hands out in this motion. And the people listening, like, their face just sunk. Like, what is he saying? Like, Nick Ferguson's saying not to make compost. And then a a few things went back and forth, and he said, all right, let's rephrase that. Turning compost is bad. Working hard to make compost is bad. And he proceeded to explain what a Johnson Sioux bioreactor was. And I sort of heard the conversation, but not really. And I've not paid that close attention to it. We did have a conversation at some point. It was Nick and I and J.R. Haley. And J.R. very astutely pointed out all that sounds like is a scaled up version of Jack's composter from the MSB. Now, if you're an MSB member, there are some. Uh, unique videos that only MSB members get in the MSB. There's not a lot of them. I I was going that model when I started it and I decided to build up the discount side more than the premium video side. Uh, Back at that time it was also a real chore to make videos and put them online without using a YouTube or something because of the file sizes and transfer limits and the kind of internet that I had. So I, I stopped doing that. I kind of view like hoarding information is not my thing. Putting it all out there is. But One of those videos, those early videos, is me building a composter from three trash cans and a system built around it. And what it really is is you take a hole saw and you make some holes in a garbage can, a tough-made 32-gallon trash can like you can buy at Home Depot, Lowe's, etc. And then you take a piece of perforated pipe and put it in the center of it, and there's a little piece of pipe that comes in from the side, and that helps create an airflow. And I built that as a solution for people who would be dealing with what you call the half-baked cake problem. So if you're trying to make compost and you have like a half yard of compost and then you add like another yard of material after it's been running for a few weeks, you've got it out of sync and it, it, it doesn't stay hot and it doesn't work. Where if you just throw all your compostables, what I say is take your, your kitchen waste, get a little tub, put it on your counter, and when you're ready to dump it, grab a handful of leaves or wood chips and throw them in there together, just like a composting toilet. Keep doing this to your garbage cans full. Right? Then your second can, you start your second can. By the time your second can is full, your first can will be completely done. Take your first can that's completely done and dump it into your third can. It doesn't need a pipe. It's finished and there's your compost. It's stored and you can use it as you need it. And then you have another one, you know, you move that one to the center, you take the first one, you start making it again. But the basic principle, if we have a round, high breathable containment system with a pipe going up through the middle of it, you know, Johnson Sue's bioreactor does that. But it's not really a new thing. It it's been around for as long I mean, I don't even know where I got the idea back then. And I, I, I built that for MSB in like oh nine, but I built the first one I made for myself in like two thousand three or four when we first came from Pennsylvania back to Texas. So that's how long I've been using that kind of a technique. Now, this weekend, because people kept saying, Isn't that Johnson Sue? Isn't that Johnson Sue? I had to honestly say Kind of hearing Nick talk about it back then kind of kicked my head back into it, and so I went out and did this thing. But is it Johnson-Sue? I don't know because I don't know what Johnson-Sue is. So I went and I watched Johnson of Johnson-Sue Bioreactor build and put one and set one up, and the, and the answer I have to give is not really. It not, it's very similar in theory. But it's totally different in practice and the effort required. So Johnson Sioux, the true bioreactor that they have PDFs on and videos on and all that stuff, it, it looks to me very laborious and very complicated to do. It's much taller than what I do. My, my fencing I use on this is three foot. It's easy to take a wheelbarrow, two guys pick a wheelbarrow and dump into it. right? They have this complex jig they make out of rebar to hold the pipes in place while you fill it. Um, you're like on a stool or a small step ladder to fill it because it's so high. There's these five pipes that go into it. And then he takes concrete mixing trays, fills them with water, and soaks the batches individually, then strains them to wash them, then puts them in the buckets, then climbs them on this thing and dumps it in there. I ain't doing all that. I ain't got no time for Ain't nobody got time for that, in my opinion. Will their compost be better than mine? Maybe. How much better? Probably not enough for me to do all that. Here's my procedure. I am using two pipes because I have two pieces of four-inch scrap pipe laying around, and I'm out of four-inch scrap pipe that's long enough to work. I would use four, maybe five in this. I take a piece of scrap fencing. I make a loop out of it about four to five foot in diameter. It's just whatever worked out. was easy for me to move around. I put it down, and I start cleaning out my chicken coop. I put the pipes in it. I let them lean against the side of the fence, and I start dumping compostable chicken litter in there, chicken and duck litter out of the coop, out of the deep litter. I do this once a year. And I start building it up, and as soon as I build up even a couple inches, I completely drench it with the hose, with the hose nozzle on it. I shut it off, and I keep doing that until I get about four inches of material in the bottom. Then I stand the pipes up straight, and I take a, a shovel or a hoe or something, and I pack the material around the pipe. Now the pipe stands up. I don't need a jig to hold the pipe up. It might tilt a little bit. It's no big deal. It'll be fine. And then I take flower pots upside down and put them over the pipe so when I'm dumping stuff in there, if I miss and I hit the pipe, it doesn't fill the pipe up. And I keep filling it up, and every time I get a little bit of space added to it, I soak it down again. And I'm throwing other stuff in there as I go. I have a a tub that I put where my chicken's mostly roost, and I throw wood chips in it, and so it's concentrated chicken manure. So I'll throw a little bit of that as I go. I'll take some compost from an older compost pile and add a little bit of that as I go. If i got to take a leak in the middle, I take the bucket, I go inside the chicken coop so I'm not flashing the street, and I pee in the bucket and I dump that because it's a good Kickstarter. Stuff like that. Um, pond weeds, et cetera, that are laying around, I throw those in there as I go. And when I get it pretty much full to the top of where, where the pipe is, and I keep wetting it as I go, I stop. And I let it sit for a day or two and I pull the pipes out, which apparently Johnson Sue does as well because I really, not because I value pipe that much, but I don't have any other and I had to make three of these. Right? And once it forms for a couple days, you pull the pipe out, the hole stays open, and you get airflow through it. They go from, you know, air temperature on the day you make them to about 140 degrees by a compost thermometer by the, the, the end of the second day. And then they slowly drop down in temperature. And to me, what I do is very easy. Not only do I not have to turn it, it's not hard to do the first time either. I don't know if it's as good. I think the pallet idea is clever. Um, if you look at my garbage can model, I actually used pipes in from the side uh, that went into the center pipe for that purpose. With what I'm doing now, I just throw it on the ground. That's not. I might add that in the future. I don't know. It'd be interesting. I, I've used all my material up. I got three piles going, big piles, right? Probably close to a yard each. Um, but I, I, I don't have enough material to make a third one. It'd be kind of interesting to then put a pallet under one and see how it goes. Do five pipes? Does it really make that big of a difference? I don't know. I'm going to put a link in the show notes today to the video I'm, I'm speaking of, where this guy, you know, assembles this thing and shows how it's done. And then you can look at my video, I'll put a link for that too, and you can decide which one's right for you. I'm not welding rebar, I'm not climbing up ladders, I'm not soaking a bucket of material at a time, I'm not doing all that. I'm not putting it down, I'm just going to say that when you claim you're doing a thing, you either are or you aren't. And I'm not doing what the Johnson Sioux people say to do. They're doing things their way. I'm doing things my way. There are some very common elements in it, and I believe both of them will work just fine. I just don't know that I want to put that much effort into it um, my, myself that, that, that they're doing. I, I you know, I sit out there. I drink a couple beers. I listen to some music. I talk to the ducks and the baby chickens. It doesn't even feel like work. That's, that's the way I want to do compost. So I'm with Nick Ferguson. Composting is bad if you mean building and turning piles and stuff. I don't want to do it anymore. I've I've done enough of it in my life, and it wasn't ever really worth it, in my opinion. Now, there was one thing I picked up from the Johnson Sioux dude that I really loved the idea of. When you build one of these piles, because I've built systems like this before, you do get that high peak in heat, and then you get a very slow dwindling on the heat. And I'm actually monitoring it this time because I'm thinking, boy, if you had a big enough greenhouse and you built one of these every three weeks or so, you could probably heat a greenhouse without doing anything complicated, just having it sitting in the center of the greenhouse. And at the end of the, the winter season, you'd have several yards of compost waiting for you. So I, I really want to know, like, how long does it stay above 120? Oh, there's two, there's two more things then. One is, their method is they put a drip irrigation on a timer on the top, and it runs for one minute a day every day. To me, I go out there every day, to spritz the top with a garden hose, whatever. It, when it seems like it needs some, I'll do that. I'm not real worried about it. And I like to make my compost this time of year where it doesn't dry out real fast anyway. You make that big of a mass wet, it ain't drying out anytime soon. So that was one difference. That they, and I, I think that's clever. And if you want to go through the rigmarole to do that, fine. I don't need to do that. I'll use a garden hose. I have a grandson that knows how a garden hose works. But the thing I liked about what he said is in time that temperature will come way down. And you'll continue with a fungal breakdown, which is absolutely true. Some of these ones I've built are still hot in the center. I already have mushrooms blowing out the sides of them. Pretty cool. So this longer-term fungal breakdown until the compost is really, really ready to use. Because remember, we're not going to turn it and get the the heat back up again. And what he does is, I think he said when the the core temperature goes below 80, he adds worms to the pile. I think that's brilliant. And I'm totally going to do that. But that's the only element that I'm adding that I wasn't doing already without ever knowing what they were doing. So I'm not putting down what Johnson Sue is. And I'm not saying what I'm doing is better. In fact, I'm betting you if you're getting under a microscope and looking for activity that theirs is probably somewhat better, maybe slightly, I don't know. I know what I make is incredibly fertile and works really, really well. And there is a difference in that when I looked at the final product of the Johnson Sioux bioreactor, it was very clay-like, and mine is cl- clay-ish, but closer to what you would think of highly tiltable uh, compost, somewhere between the two. So it is obviously a little bit different. And I just don't want, because people are commenting, Jack's doing Johnson Sioux, Jackson and Johnson Sioux. The reason I don't want that said is not because I want credit for what I've done. I don't care. Like I said, this isn't my idea. This has been done long before I was probably ever making compost. I don't want somebody looking at that and thinking, this is what Johnson Sioux is. If you want to do Johnson Sioux, go to the Johnson Sioux people. If you want to do the lazy duck farmer method, you can look at what I'm doing and maybe improve it a little bit for yourself. Uh, next, I want to talk about the problem of not knowing what you don't know and what I'm going to call the study of the cutting cutting wire with regular pliers. Okay, So this weekend when I was doing all this compost work, I had a pair of simple slip joint pliers in my pocket from something else I had done. And I was running out of material. I remembered that my grandson had two straw bales I had set up for him for archery targets. And they were laying out in the field. And they were pretty, you know, done. But they were there. And it was I might as well get it mixed in. And I would get enough volume to do what I wanted to do. So I went with the wheelbarrow, picked them up, brought them back. And I pulled those pliers out. And I don't know if, like. I don't know how what percentage of people who listen to the show wouldn't know this, but plain old regular like two dollar and fifty cent bargain bin pliers. At the bottom of the pliers, there's a little gap, and it will cut wire. It won't cut all wire well, but wire like hay bale wire, thick wire, rigid wire, it will snap it clean. And so instead of going to get my cutting pliers, I pulled them out, and I was cutting these bales loose, and I said, "Wait a minute." In all my years of doing this show, there's a lot of things that I assumed people knew that they told me they learned from me. And that we live in a society today where a lot of skills have been lost because kids just don't learn from their parents anymore. So I made this little three-minute video, and it's about 30 seconds of it. Is this is what they do. And several people, some people in their 50s have already commented, I was today years old when I learned this. I didn't know you could do that with them. Some people said, hey, I tried to do it. Maybe mine are not made for it. One gal, Dawn, said she tried to cut like the wire on a spiral notebook with it, and it just bent. It will. This is not a great tool for it. It is a multi-purpose thing that, I guess, when the plier people were out how to make pliers, they figured we might as well put it in there. If you have really soft wire, it may not cut, and it won't really do a good job on stranded wire, which is also really soft. It's more rigid, wire-like, like baling wire. But it's just good to know that when you own this tool and you have it in your hands that it it can cut wire for you instead of grabbing it and bending the wire back and forth. And I said, you know, if you want to call me a dumbass for thinking some people need to do this, go ahead, or you can say that you learned something, or you can say you knew it. And it didn't take long before some guy from Brazil said, WTF, I thought all men knew how to do this, at least Brazilian men. And I was like, you know, I didn't think it would take long for this manly man macho shit to show up. Thank you for proving me right. And, you know, I guess we should just say to hell with all of the young men and women that grew up in single-parent households with nobody to teach them anything like you and I had. I can't even remember when I learned this. I don't remember if my dad or uncle or granddad showed me, or maybe I was just somewhere and saw them do it and was like, oh. Because, I mean, it's not something you have to be real smart to understand. As soon as you see somebody do it, you're like, oh, that's why that's there. And I had to be, you know, 10 years old or younger when I learned it. And I had some shitty things in my childhood, but I did have some male role models to teach me this stuff. I did learn how to hunt. I did learn how to shoot. I learned how a bow, you know, works. I learned the basic principles of hunting beyond uh you know what you learn in a hunter safety course, like hey, if you're gonna hunt out of a tree stand, you probably need a rope to pull your shit up with. Because I hadn't like I, I would have eventually figured that out, but I learned it because I learned to hunt from an uncle who was a hunter. And I had that. And many of you had that, and many of you didn't. So I said to this guy, so it's like, screw them, F them, right? They should be in our male genetics that we know how all tools work. His response was, huh, first world problems. Like there's no single parents or divorces in Brazil. And I think it's it's a multifaceted problem. And I have decided going forward that when I'm out doing little things, and I have a little thing like that, even though 9 out of 10 of y'all might be like, I knew that, the 1 out of 10, it's worth it. To put, If you don't want to watch that content, don't watch it. But I think we all need to be doing this. And there's this huge temptation. When you have a, you know, a teenager or something like that working around you, or even a young 20-something, and they don't know how to use a shovel right, or they don't know that you can use a pair of pliers to cut wire that wasn't really designed to be a wire-cutting pair of pliers, to kind of pick on them or whatever. That's not what we need to be doing. You need to be grateful that you have this knowledge because either you learned on your own or somebody taught you. And here's the problem when you say, well, some people should be able to figure it out or learn. You don't know what you don't know. Why would someone who never knew that was the case investigate how to use a pair of pliers? It's perfectly reasonable that they would figure they knew how to use a pair of pliers. Here's another one. Somebody commented on this. I knew this too, but was another one. I was like, yeah, you can cut chain Not huge chain, but fairly substantial chain with a pair of vice cutters. Vice cutters have that same little like cutting feature deep down in the notch. And if you get onto a piece of chain and you kind of push till you can barely close them, right? And then open them a little bit and turn that tightener at the back a little bit more and go back down again and keep doing that. It's like a little mini pair of bolt cutters. You know what? That could save your ass knowing that you can do that. But if you didn't know that you didn't know that, how would you know? Well, here's what we have to start realizing. Those of us that have skill sets and knowledge, there's a lot of stuff that we just take for granted that people know that they don't know. We don't need to be afraid to teach it just because it's basic. You want to teach somebody how to build a friction fire, great. You might want to start out with, here's how to build a fire. I've seen grown-ass men can't build a fire. And I've always been tempted... Because we come from this mindset of manliness, right? And skills that men should be able to build a fire or whatever. But that's because you learned. What about someone who didn't? What about somebody's total instruction on how to build a fire, if they were lucky, was throwing charcoal in a grill, squirting a bunch of lighter fluid on it, and throwing a match on it? Well, that person is fairly reasonable that they would think, I can just take this dry wood and just hold a match to it. And what if sometimes it works? They don't know why it worked. They don't know there's a little bit of leaves in there that acted like tinder and kindling, right? They didn't. They don't really realize that. Like so now they're trying to light stuff that's too big or too green or whatever. So you teach them how to make a fire. Then we can teach you how to make a friction fire. Because when you do all that work for that little hot coal, you kind of want to have a nice little set of of, of tinder and kindling ready to go to drop it into, or you did all the work for nothing. And I think we need to do a better job. Those of us that know these things, of helping people learn what they don't know and learn what they don't know they don't know. That's just my thoughts on that. Next, I want to talk real quick here about why I feel that any truly regenerative or even sustainable future must include aquaculture. And I'm talking about at the neighborhood level. I'm not just talking about someplace down the street that raises trout in a bunch of trout ponds or catfish in a bunch of catfish ponds. In fact, that's probably the least desirable way to do aquaculture that we have. That's a monoculture aquaculture. I put in a bunch of ponds, I throw pellets in it, I raise catfish. It's actually much more profitable per, per acre than raising cows, by the way, and it's much easier. But it's still the least desirable way. When I talk about aquaculture here, I'm talking about the rich, traditional, deep uh, aquaculture that, that everybody did in, in 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 organized societies for thousands of years, and we're not really sure exactly when or how, but it was largely lost in Western society in Europe. There are still remnants of it. There is entire systems that are still being practiced in places like Hungary, where they're doing multiple ponds, and it's it's basically it's seeded and like drained and seeded and grazed one season and then flooded the next and and infiltrated with fry, and another one is harvested. So it's a three-pond system. And there were complex aquaculture systems like that all over Europe. It never really came to North America. A lot of the native populations practiced forms of aquaculture. The most famous but probably the most oversold is the Chinampa systems in Central America and Northern South America. But one of the reasons I think it it didn't really come here is by the time we really started to settle the Americas in in real numbers, we had wiped out so many of the native population through disease – And that, by the way, was not an intentional thing. It was a consequence of them being exposed to diseases they had not developed any resistance from. So there was a remnant of those civilizations when we got here. So there was no one for for us to learn these things from. And then the rivers, the streams, and the ocean were so full of fish, who could be bothered to farm them? It was just taken for granted that they would be there, and then they were over-harvested over the years, and problems came from that. But we never developed a real aquaculture culture here in North America or South America, heavy one, that wasn't just raising fish in a tank or in a sterile pond. That came around when people started realizing they could make money on it. If you go to places like Vietnam or other parts of Asia like Cambodia and Laos and, and you know, China, especially in rural communities, You'll find a lot of people with very small holdings, small backyards, doing aquaculture at the scale I'd do it or a bit larger. Almost all of them will be doing it by digging a hole in the ground, which, God, I wish I could do, but I just physically can't do here because of my rock bed. But this is, and it's completely integrated into their lives. It is completely integrated into their gardens, and it's a huge, it's a huge push toward biodiversity, it brings in so much. When you have a pond in your backyard, you start to see animals and wildlife and insects and things like that that you just don't see otherwise. It's an instant, you know, multiplier of biodiversity and interactions and edge. And when you look at what you can do with it. I had somebody I'm, I'm working on right now this aquaculture course. I'm about a third through just the outline of it and I've been on it for 3 weeks. This is going to be a very practical but academic course. It's, it's going to be designed so that someone can learn how to produce food in their backyard using aquaculture, not aquaponics, though there will be aquaponics components in it. And somebody said, can you really produce something this size, a meal of fish a week, 52 times a year? I said, it depends on how you define meal and what you mean by this. My pond behind my duck coop could easily feed my wife and I A meal every other week, just the way it is, without pushing it at all. It's not a very big system—a 16 by 8 uh, foot pond, but it's only about 18 inches deep, because that's that's as deep as we could make it and make it do the things we wanted to do. And that's one primary harvestable species: bullheads. But I don't have to feed them very much, and I'm cutting my duck food bill, and I'm making compost, and I'm producing enough in there that I could generate enough revenue to pay for the food. And I probably could generate enough revenue to pay for the electricity. Now, I'm going to ask you if you could do all that with 16 by 8 foot of dirt growing a garden. And the answer is, I know you can't. You can grow some carbohydrate crops like potatoes and stuff like that. But when you look at the nutrient density of a well-fed bullhead catfish versus the nutrient density of a tomato, you can forget about having a yield in calorie and nutrient per square foot that even comes close to what you can do with aquaculture. And now I can tie in all sorts of vegetative systems into that, plus increase my biodiversity. Last year, the big white tanks that are set up behind the building, if you've seen the video, there's three big about four-foot square white fiberglass tanks. They're, they're, uh, they're basically junk that was you know, repurposed. They were feeding tubs for cattle. And uh, they fed molasses to cattle out of these things. And so, in those where there are no catfish, because there were, this happened in the bigger pond too, but, you know, the tadpoles suspiciously disappeared uh, before that they fully converted over. But in the three back tanks that only had goldfish and minnows, there were 10,000 plus tadpoles. Most of which turned out to be spring peepers and they came out of there in droves when they hatched. Like, what's the value of that in the ecosystem? That, that additional kick. And so, when I look at the history of aquaculture, and I look at my results in playing with it, wherein as I could over the last eight years, I think if we're truly looking to radically transform from this country into something i think we really need to do which is a more sufficient self-sufficient and and and, and regenerative society it has to include this and that doesn't mean everybody's backyard needs it but you know it, i'm going to say that for every 10 people that are growing food in their backyard we should have at least four or five that are doing aquaculture i'd take two or three right now i think it's maybe one in 20 at the most but everybody i know doing it it becomes completely part of their life and they can't see not having it anymore it brings so it brings beauty it brings production it brings biodiversity and i think it really belongs there that's why i'm working on this last i want to wrap up if you own as little as a tenth of an acre in this country you just have a regular suburban lot or something like that little house and you haven't developed it you're wasting a huge resource this is another thing i want to talk about like this, the mentality of people that live in parts of the world that are not fully developed, uh, that are not willing to even if they have modern support systems, are not willing to you know depend on them 100%. that do get a significant amount of their, their 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 food from their own production. This idea that they would have a tenth of an acre in grass that they have to mow once a week in the summertime would be insane to them. If you brought some of these people, and these are not dumb people just because they live in a country that's not as advanced technologically as ours. In fact, I would say in some ways it makes them a hell of a lot smarter. Um, if you brought them here and you showed them what we're wasting, they would be dumbfounded. They wouldn't even comprehend why we would choose not to use those resources. So. I just want to say if when you heard me talking about food shortages today, uh, technology kill switches, all of these problems in the world, war in the Ukraine, if you're starting to really realize how you are underprepared, even if you call yourself a prepper, maybe you're not a prep tender, that word we discovered today I really enjoyed, um, but you just realize I need to do more, and that backyard just sits there as grass and roses, that's where to start. Because that is, that is an actual, that's what an actual decentralized food system looks like. That backyard could raise enough quail, I guarantee you, it could raise enough quail to put a full meal of meat in your, in your home, even with a family of four to six, every week. There's one supper a week. Aquaculture, you do something with it, I bet you you can do at least one every other week. And then you start, building, you know, you do a laying flock, right? Then you've got eggs. That's another high nutrient density. If you're doing quail, you don't even need to do that. Use the quail's eggs. Quail start laying in six weeks. It's the ultimate backyard small holding meat and egg production system. You can process a quail, honest to God, in 30 seconds. I've done it with no tools. Pop the breast out, yank the, 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 the thigh and the leg out, snap them off, done. It really is that fast. I've got, i try to find it. I've got videos of me doing it in 30 seconds. It's just not that hard. And then you add some vegetable gardens, you add some bush, you know, maybe some, some berry bushes and things like that, some herbs. And you do that all around America and you actually do it the way we've been talking about for years. And we start to actually change the calculus in a real way. And I, I, I really want people to start thinking more about what made the Native Americans who were still here, who didn't get taken out by smallpox, etc., so damn resilient up until we killed off all their buffalo. It was a decentralized food system. Knowing that they would eat made them, in the words of General Custer, the freest people that ever lived. And the truth is they are not the freest people that ever lived. There was most of the planet lived that way for most of the history of human beings, and not just as hunter-gatherers, it's always been the case that the most stable societies were a combination of hunter-gatherer and horticultural. As soon as you move to agriculture instead of horticulture, so when when you're growing food in your backyard, you're doing horticulture. Horticulture is the culture of plants, right? When you take a field, an acre... 400 acres, 4,000 acres, and you plow it dead, and you plant one crop in there, now you're doing agriculture. Agriculture is the culture of fields, and that's the difference. And stable societies have taken horticulture, aquaculture, hunting and gathering, sensible harvest practices with their hunting and gathering, and strong community, and they've been the most stable societies that have ever existed. The only thing that has made them unstable is conquest. And there's a reason that they become susceptible to conquest. And it's a good thing that turns around and hurts them. And that's this. If you know you can feed yourself, if you know you can feed your children, if You know you can feed your grandchildren. And you know the great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren that you will never meet will be well-fed and cared for. If you've built a society that that is that stable, the last thing you're thinking about is warfare. See how simple that is to understand? But the second you start harvesting grain or something like it, and putting it in great big stockpiles, and using massive amounts of forced human labor, either through tax or direct slavery, to build up stockpile and build cities and civilizations like that, then you know you have to defend it. And so you build empire. And empire inevitably leads to collapse. So somewhere in it this time around, it would be nice if we figured out how to build that stability, and build that stability in a defensible model because society is not quite ready to get to the point where we leave people alone yet, unfortunately. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I appreciate you all being with us today. And uh, if you enjoyed the show, do consider joining the MSB. That is the Member Support Brigade. You'll get really great discounts. Remember, if uh, you join the MSB, you get those great discounts. That pays for your membership Right there, but you're also supporting this show at about 18.3 cents a minute. Or a minute. 18.3 cents like That sounds like a, a, long, a bad long-distance commercial, right? No, uh, 18.3 cents per episode. Today's item of the day for t spaz because that's the other way you can support it, is just do your online shopping at tSPaz.com. You know, we talked about aquaculture today. And in most of the backyard-scale systems, we're going to have to have at least a pump. And I recommend two for backup. And some need bigger pumps than the one I'm I'm recommending today. But this is a good backup as well. And it's great in systems that are for irrigation or ebb and flow or things like that. It's made by a company called Active Aqua. The one I've uh, standardized on for my small size pump is a 550-gallon-per-hour version of the pump. They make multiple versions, up to about 1,150 gallons and down to like 200. Uh, I actually just recently bought some 400s because I couldn't get 550s. And I needed to put some more pumps on the shelf and some other projects I'm working on, and I thought that those were good enough. And so I checked them today, and the 550s are back in stock, and they're on sale at 20% off. So you can buy cheaper pumps, but these Active Aquas, I have used, God, near a dozen of them in total. I think I killed one in eight years. So they last, and that's important, especially if you're using is your backup pump, right? That's important. If it's your bat, you really don't want your big pump and your little pump to die at the same time. Um, for my big pump, I've standardized on the Danner 300 gallon per hour. That's, that's linked in the, the write up as well. And I like standardizing on pumps and I like having a, I always have a spare. Right now I have one, two, three, four big Danner pumps running. And there's a, there's a fifth one sitting on a shelf and there's kind of a worn out but still functional sixth one on a shelf too that I'm going to play with and, and, and see if I can get it rehabbed a little bit. It's like eight years old, and it's just not putting out like it should. Uh, it was the one that I had to yank out of the duck pond uh, this winter during a freeze, and it turned out when I played with it a little bit, it wasn't dead. It just wasn't working. Uh, so I'm, I'm working on rebuilding. And the fact that you can rebuild a pump like that, and I don't really mean rebuild. I mean clean it out and make sure everything's right and clean some contacts and stuff, put it back together after eight years is a testament to the quality in pumps. But here's my deal. If you heard what I said about aquaculture today and you have some builds planned, something I would go ahead and get. I'm not big on buying things for something in the future, but if you know you're going to do it, pumps they are going out of stock, they are one of those things that have little doodads and widgets that are in short supply. I would put them on the shelf now. Because it will never go bad, and worst case scenario, you can sell it to somebody if you decide not to do it. With that, we've wrapped things up. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you were on the live feed and you had to get the last bit of it here uh, on the audio version, I apologize for that. I wanted to say one thing, too, about the problems with Apple Podcasts. It looks like maybe we're on the road to a solution, but I put out an article today as well. Go to com. Start scrolling down if you're an Apple Podcast user and you're having to listen to some other way. You can go there and you can see a solution that we do have for you. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way.